Question 46, Part 1 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 46. The Passion of Christ in Twelve Articles. Part 1. Articles 1 through 4. In proper sequence, we have now to consider all that relates to Christ's leaving the world. In the first place, his passion. Secondly, his death. Thirdly, his burial, and fourthly, his descent into hell. With regard to the passion, there arises a threefold consideration. 1. The passion itself. 2. The efficient cause of the passion. 3. The fruits of the passion. Under the first heading, there are twelve points of inquiry. First, whether it was necessary for Christ to suffer for men's deliverance. Second, whether there was any other possible means of delivering men. Third, whether this was the more suitable means. Fourth, whether it was fitting for Christ to suffer on the cross. Fifth, the extent of his sufferings. Sixth, whether the pain he endured was the greatest. Seventh, whether his entire soul suffered. Eighth, whether his passion hindered the joy of fruition. Ninth, the time of the passion. Tenth, the place. Eleventh, whether it was fitting for him to be crucified with robbers. Twelfth, whether Christ's passion is to be attributed to the Godhead. First article, whether it was necessary for Christ to suffer for the deliverance of the human race. Objection one. It would seem that it was not necessary for Christ to suffer for the deliverance of the human race. For the human race could not be delivered except by God, according to Isaiah 45.21. Am not I the Lord, and there is no God else besides me? A just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. But no necessity can compel God for this would be repugnant to his omnipotence. Therefore, it was not necessary for Christ to suffer. Objection to, further, what is necessary is opposed to what is voluntary. But Christ suffered of his own will, for it is written in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was offered because it was his own will. Therefore, it was not necessary for him to suffer. Objection 3. Further, as is written in Psalm 24, verse 10, 
All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. But it does not seem necessary that he should suffer on the part of the divine mercy, which, as it bestows gifts freely, so it appears to condone debts without satisfaction. Nor again, on the part of divine justice, according to which man had deserved everlasting condemnation. Therefore, it does not seem necessary that Christ should have suffered for man's deliverance. Objection for further. The angelic nature is more excellent than the human, as appears from Dionysius in On the Divine Names 4. But Christ did not suffer to repair the angelic nature which had sinned. Therefore, apparently, neither was it necessary for him to suffer for the salvation of the human race. On the contrary, it is written in John 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. I answer that, as the philosopher teaches in Metaphysics 5, there are several acceptations of the word necessary. In one way it means anything which of its nature cannot be otherwise, and in this way it is evident that it was not necessary either on the part of God or on the part of man for Christ to suffer. In another sense, a thing may be necessary for some cause quite apart from itself, and should this be either an efficient or a moving cause, then it brings about the necessity of compulsion, as for instance when a man cannot get away owing to the violence of someone else holding him. But if the external factor which induces necessity be an end, then it will be said to be necessary from presupposing such end, namely, when some particular end cannot exist at all, or not conveniently, except such end be presupposed. It was not necessary, then, for Christ to suffer from necessity of compulsion, either on God's part, who ruled that Christ should suffer, or on Christ's own part, who suffered voluntarily. Yet it was necessary from necessity of the end proposed, and this can be accepted in three ways. First of all, on our part, who have been delivered by his passion, according to John 3.14. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Secondly, on Christ's part, who merited the glory of being exalted through the lowliness of his passion, and to this must be referred, Luke 24.26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and so to enter into his glory? Thirdly, on God's part, whose determination regarding the Passion of Christ, foretold in the Scriptures and prefigured in the observances of the Old Testament, had to be fulfilled. And this is what St. Luke says in chapter 22, verse 22. The Son of Man indeed goeth according to that which is determined. And in Luke 24, verses 44 and 46, 
These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must needs be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. For it is thus written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise again from the dead. Reply to Objection 1. This argument is based on the necessity of compulsion on God's part. Reply to Objection 2. This argument rests on the necessity of compulsion on the part of the man Christ. Reply to Objection 3. That man should be delivered by Christ's passion was in keeping with both his mercy and his justice. With his justice, because by his passion Christ made satisfaction for the sin of the human race, and so man was set free by Christ's justice. And with his mercy, for since man of himself could not satisfy for the sin of all human nature, as was said above in question 1, article 2, God gave him his Son to satisfy for him according to Romans 3, verses 24 and 25. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And this came of more copious mercy than if he had forgiven sins without satisfaction. Hence it is said in Ephesians 2 verse 4, God who is rich in mercy, for his exceeding charity wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. Reply to Objection 4 The sin of the angels was irreparable, not so the sin of the first man. Confer Pars Prima, Question 64, Article 2. Second Article whether there was any other possible way of human deliverance besides the Passion of Christ. Objection 1. It would seem that there was no other possible way of human deliverance besides Christ's Passion. For our Lord says in John 12, verse 24, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falling into the ground dieth, itself remaineth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Upon this, St. Augustine observes that Christ called himself the seed. Consequently, unless he suffered death, he would not otherwise have produced the fruit of our redemption. Objection to, further, our Lord addresses the Father in Matthew 26, 42. My Father, if this chalice may not pass away, but I must drink it, thy will be done. But he spoke there of the chalice of the Passion. Therefore, Christ's Passion could not pass away. Hence, Hilary says in his commentary on Matthew, Therefore, the chalice cannot pass except he drink of it, because we cannot be restored except through his Passion. Objection 3. Further, 
God's justice required that Christ should satisfy by the passion in order that man might be delivered from sin. But Christ cannot let his justice pass, for it is written in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we believe not, he continueth faithful, he cannot deny himself. But he would deny himself were he to deny his justice, since he is justice itself. It seems impossible, then, for man to be delivered otherwise than by Christ's passion. Objection for Further, there can be no falsehood underlying faith. But the fathers of old believed that Christ would suffer. Consequently, it seems that it had to be that Christ should suffer. On the contrary, Augustine says in On the Trinity 13, We assert that the way whereby God deigned to deliver us by the man Jesus Christ, who is mediator between God and man, is both good and befitting the divine dignity. But let us also show that other possible means were not lacking on God's part, to whose power all things are equally subordinate. I answer that, a thing may be said to be possible or impossible in two ways. First of all, simply and absolutely, or secondly, from supposition. Therefore, speaking simply and absolutely, it was possible for God to deliver mankind otherwise than by the passion of Christ, because no word shall be impossible with God, according to Luke one thirty-seven. Yet it was impossible if some supposition be made. For since it is impossible for God's foreknowledge to be deceived and his will or ordinance to be frustrated, then, supposing God's foreknowledge and ordinance regarding Christ's passion, it was not possible at the same time for Christ not to suffer and for mankind to be delivered otherwise than by Christ's passion and the same holds good of all things foreknown and preordained by God, as was laid down in the first part. Confer question 14, article 13. Reply to objection 1. Our Lord is speaking there, presupposing God's foreknowledge and predetermination, according to which it was resolved that the fruit of man's salvation should not follow unless Christ suffered. Reply to Objection 2. In the same way we must understand what is here objected to in the second instance. If this chalice may not pass away, but I must drink of it. That is to say, because thou hast so ordained it. Hence he adds, Thy will be done. Reply to Objection 3. Even this justice depends on the divine will, requiring satisfaction for sin from the human race. But if he had willed to free man from sin without any satisfaction, he would not have acted against justice. For a judge, while preserving justice, cannot pardon fault without penalty, if he must visit fault committed against another, 
for instance against another man or against the state or any prince in higher authority but god has no one higher than himself for he is the sovereign and common good of the whole universe consequently if he forgives sin which has the formality of faults in that it is committed against himself he wrongs no one just as anyone else overlooking a personal trespass without satisfaction acts mercifully and not unjustly and so david exclaimed when he sought mercy to thee only have i sinned in psalm fifty verse six as if to say thou canst pardon me without injustice reply to objection four human faith and even the divine scriptures upon which faith is based are both based on the divine foreknowledge and ordinance and the same reason holds good of that necessity which comes of supposition and of the necessity which arises of the divine foreknowledge and will third article whether there was any more suitable way of delivering the human race than by christ's passion objection one it would seem that there was some other more suitable way of delivering the human race besides christ's passion for nature in its operation imitates the divine work since it is moved and regulated by god but nature never employs two agents where one will suffice therefore since god could have liberated mankind solely by his divine will it does not seem fitting that christ's passion should have been added for the deliverance of the human race objection to further natural actions are more suitably performed than deeds of violence because violence is a severance or lapse from what is according to nature as is said in on the heavens too but christ's passion brought about his death by violence therefore it would have been more appropriate had christ died a natural death rather than suffer for man's deliverance objection three further it seems most fitting that whatsoever keeps something unjustly and by violence should be deprived of it by some superior power hence isaiah says in chapter fifty two verse three you were sold gratis and you shall be redeemed without money but the devil possessed no right over man whom he had deceived by guile and whom he held subject in servitude by a sort of violence therefore it seems most suitable that christ should have despoiled the devil solely by his power and without the passion on the contrary saint augustine says in on the trinity thirteen there was no other more suitable way of healing our misery than by the passion of christ i answer that among means to an end that one is the more suitable whereby the various concurring means employed are themselves helpful to such end but in this that man was delivered by christ's passion 
many other things besides deliverance from sin concurred for man's salvation. In the first place, man knows thereby how much God loves him, and is thereby stirred to love him in return, and herein lies the perfection of human salvation. Hence the Apostle says in Romans 5 verse 8, God commendeth his charity towards us, for when as yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. Secondly, because thereby he sent us an example of obedience, humility, constancy, justice, and the other virtues displayed in the Passion, which are requisite for man's salvation. Hence it is written in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for us, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Thirdly, because Christ, by his Passion, not only delivered man from sin, but also merited justifying grace for him and the glory of bliss, as shall be shown later in question 48, article 1, as well as in question 49, articles 1 and 5. Fourthly, because by this man is all the more bound to refrain from sin, according to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You are bought with a great price. Glorify and bear God in your body. Fifthly, because it redounded to man's greater dignity, that as man was overcome and deceived by the devil, so also it should be a man that should overthrow the devil. And as man deserved death, so a man by dying should vanquish death. Hence it is written in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, Thanks be to God who hath given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was accordingly more fitting that we should be delivered by Christ's passion than simply by God's good will. Reply to Objection 1 Even nature uses several means to one intent, in order to do something more fittingly, as two eyes for seeing, and the same can be observed in other matters. Reply to Objection 2 As Chrysostom says, Christ had come in order to destroy death, not his own, for since he is life itself, death could not be his, but men's death. Hence it was not by reason of his being bound to die that he laid his body aside, but because the death he endured was inflicted on him by men. But even if his body had sickened and dissolved in the sight of all men, it was not befitting him who healed the infirmities of others to have his own body afflicted with the same. And even had he laid his body aside without any sickness, and had then appeared, men would not have believed him when he spoke of his resurrection. For how could Christ's victory over death appear, unless he endured it in the sight of all men, and so proved that death was vanquished by the incorruption of his body? Reply to Objection 3 Although the devil assailed man unjustly, nevertheless, on account of sin, man was justly left by God under the devil's bondage. 
and therefore it was fitting that through justice man should be delivered from the devil's bondage by Christ making satisfaction on his behalf in the Passion. This was also a fitting means of overthrowing the pride of the devil, who is a deserter from justice and covetous of sway, in that Christ should vanquish him and deliver man not merely by the power of his Godhead, but likewise by the justice and lowliness of the Passion, as Augustine says in On the Trinity 13. Fourth Article. Whether Christ ought to have suffered on the cross. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ ought not to have suffered on the cross, for the truth ought to conform to the figure. But in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament which prefigured Christ, the beasts were slain with a sword and afterwards consumed by fire. Therefore, it seems that Christ ought not to have suffered on a cross, but rather by the sword or by fire. Objection to further, Damascene says in On the True Faith 3 that Christ ought not to assume dishonoring afflictions. But death on a cross was most dishonoring and ignominious. Hence it is written in Wisdom 2.20, let us condemn him to a most shameful death. Therefore, it seems that Christ ought not to have undergone the death of the cross. Objection 3. Further, it was said of Christ in Matthew 21, 9, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But death upon the cross was a death of malediction, as we read in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. He is accursed of God that hangeth on a tree. Therefore, it does not seem fitting for Christ to be crucified. On the contrary, it is written in Philippians 2 verse 8, He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I answer that it was most fitting that Christ should suffer the death of the cross. First of all, as an example of virtue, for Augustine thus writes in his 83 questions, question 25, God's wisdom became man to give us an example in righteousness of living. But it is part of righteous living not to stand in fear of things which ought not to be feared. Now there are some men who, although they do not fear death in itself, are yet troubled over the manner of their death. In order, then, that no kind of death should trouble an upright man, the cross of this man had to be set before him, because, among all kinds of death, none was more execrable, more fear-inspiring than this. Secondly, because this kind of death was especially suitable in order to atone for the sin of our first parent, which was the plucking of the apple from the forbidden tree against God's command. And so, to atone for that sin, it was fitting that Christ should suffer by being fastened to a tree, as if restoring what Adam had purloined, 
according to Psalm 68, verse 5. Then did I pay that which I took not away. Hence Augustine says, in a sermon on the Passion, Adam despised the command, plucking the apple from the tree. But all that Adam lost, Christ found upon the cross. The third reason is because, as Chrysostom says in a sermon on the Passion, he suffered upon a high rood, and not under a roof, in order that the nature of the air might be purified, and the earth felt a like benefit, for it was cleansed by the flowing of the blood from his side. And on John 3, verse 14, The Son of Man must be lifted up, Theophylact says. When you hear that he was lifted up, understand his hanging on high, that he might sanctify the air who had sanctified the earth by walking upon it. The fourth reason is, because, by dying on it, he prepares for us an ascent into heaven, as Chrysostom says. Hence it is that he says in John 12:32, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all things to myself. The fifth reason is because it is befitting the universal salvation of the entire world. Hence Gregory of Nyssa observes, The shape of the cross extending out into four extremes from their central point of contact denotes the power and the providence diffused everywhere of him who hung upon it. Chrysostom also says that upon the cross, He dies with outstretched hands, in order to draw with one hand the people of old, and with the other those who spring from the Gentiles. The sixth reason is because of the various virtues denoted by this class of death. Hence Augustine, in his book on the grace of the Old and New Testament, says, Not without purpose did he choose this class of death, that he might be a teacher of that breadth and height and length and depth, of which the Apostle speaks in Ephesians 3.18, For breadth is in the beam, which is fixed transversely above. This appertains to good works, since the hands are stretched out upon it. Length is the tree's extent from the beam to the ground, and there it is planted, that is, it stands and abides, which is the note of longanimity. Height in that portion of the tree which remains over from the transverse beam up towards the top, and this is at the head of the crucified, because he is the supreme desire of souls of good hope. But that part of the tree which is hidden from view to hold it fixed, and from which the entire rood springs, denotes the depth of gratuitous grace. And, as Augustine says, the tree upon which were fixed the members of him dying was even the chair of the master teaching. The seventh reason is because this kind of death responds to very many figures. For, as Augustine says in a sermon on the Passion, an ark of wood preserved the human race from the waters of the deluge. At the exodus of God's people from Egypt, 
Moses with a rod divided the sea, overthrew Pharaoh, and saved the people of God. The same Moses dipped his rod into the water, changing it from bitter to sweet. At the touch of a wooden rod, a salutary spring gushed forth from a spiritual rock. Likewise, in order to overcome Amalek, Moses stretched forth his arms with rod in hand. Lastly, God's law is entrusted to the wooden ark of the covenant, all of which are like steps by which we mount to the wood of the cross. Reply to Objection 1. The altar of holocausts, upon which the sacrifices of animals were immolated, was constructed of timbers, as is set forth in Exodus 27. And in this respect the truth answers to the figure, but it is not necessary for it to be likened in every respect, otherwise it would not be a likeness. But the reality, as Damascene says in On the Faith 3. But in particular, as Chrysostom says, his head is not cut off, as was done to John, nor was he sawn in twain, like Isaiah, in order that his entire and indivisible body might obey death, and that there might be no excuse for them who want to divide the church. While, instead of material fire, there was the spiritual fire of charity in Christ's holocaust. Reply to Objection 2. Christ refused to undergo dishonorable sufferings which are allied with defects of knowledge, or of grace, or even of virtue, but not those injuries inflicted from without, nay, more, as is written in Hebrews 12.2, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Reply to Objection 3. As Augustine says in Against Faustus 14, sin is accursed, and so is death and mortality, which comes of sin. But Christ's flesh was mortal, having the resemblance of the flesh of sin. And hence Moses calls it accursed, just as the apostle calls it sin, saying in Second Corinthians 5.21, Him that knew no sin, for us he hath made sin, namely because of the penalty of sin. Nor is there greater ignominy on that account, because he said he is accursed of God. For, unless God had hated sin, he would have never sent his Son to take upon himself our death and to destroy it. Acknowledge, then, that it was for us he took the curse upon himself, whom you confess to have died for us. Hence it is written in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. End of question 46. Part 1. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.